It's not a, it's not a question of violence or non-violence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. That's the actor Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton in the riveting new movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. Hampton was the 21-year-old charismatic leader of the Black Panthers in Chicago, who was killed in a December 1969 raid on his apartment conducted by agents of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office and Chicago Police. But what has emerged since is the central role played by the FBI and its director, J. Edgar Hoover, in the events that took place that day. Under a secret program known as COINTELPRO, Hoover had ordered his agents to create so-called racial squads to recruit informants inside the black community and, as he wrote, quote, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. One of those informants, the Judas in the movie's title, was William O'Neill an African-American who, at the direction of a local FBI agent, infiltrated the Black Panthers and turned over crucial intelligence that ultimately led to Hampton's death. We'll talk to Shaka King, the director of Judas and the Black Messiah, about the legacy of Fred Hampton and the role of the FBI, and then we'll talk to Congressman Steve Cohen, who has reintroduced his bill to strip J. Edgar Hoover's name from the FBI building in Washington on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we did the um, the buried treasure that preceded this about the break-in of the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania in 1971, a break-in that led to the uh, publication of uh, up to a thousand FBI documents, including the first indications of the existence of COINTELPRO. And as we've since learned, this secret program of J. Edgar Hoover to not just collect intelligence, but to incite, to provoke, to attack and discredit leaders of left-wing groups and black nationalist groups. It's the program that led to Fred Hampton's death. It's the program that produced the efforts by the FBI to try to convince Martin Luther King to commit suicide, all sorts of abuses. Uh, And it makes this movie all the more relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating historical connection. But what's so striking to me about uh, this this movie is the resonance of all of the things that happened, you know, decades ago today, that we are looking at these events 
in the middle of this racial reckoning that we've had uh, in this country over the last year since the George Floyd killing uh, and all of the attention on the abuses of of law enforcement. And, you know, the movie to, to me, in a sense, is revisionist history. But, you know, that that's a term that's sometimes used in a derogatory way. Yeah. But, but, you know, but but there is there is a great tradition of revisionist history among academics. And this movie looks at uh, the Black Panthers in, in a way that I think most Americans um, haven't. It's a much more nuanced, much more subtle uh, look at uh, what that movement was all about. And um, I think it's eye-opening uh, to, to a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. You know, look, I, I think for most people, they will look at this movie through the lens of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter protests that you know, took place all last year. But, you know, I think for you and I, and hopefully for a good chunk of our listeners, there's also this sort of fascinating window into the FBI at the time and attitudes and reverence that people had for J. Edgar Hoover, all the while these horrific abuses were taking place and excesses and secret surveillance with no court warrants and all sorts of uh, undercover investigations, including the use of agent provocateurs like William O'Neill, targeting groups that were protesting all sorts of things in American society. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's a reason that uh, this renewed push to take Hoover's name off the FBI building is is gathering some steam in the yeah. wake of this movie. Yeah. And look, I mean, and, and having uh, covered the FBI and the Justice Department as long as we have, we also know that even though we may not see the same kind the, as as grotesque excesses as as we saw during the Hoover era that you just referred to, history repeats itself. And there are times when the FBI, with all of the power it has, the irony here is that all of the um, attention now is on white supremacists and right-wing militias in the wake of the January 6th attack on Congress. And in a sense, we are giving the FBI an enormous amount of power again to investigate uh, those kinds of cases, which is hugely important uh, because there really is a threat out there. But I think we also have to be vigilant that the FBI doesn't uh, do the same thing with those groups as well. Yeah, no, look, these are hard questions. And, you know, I will pose them to both Shaka King and Steve Cohen when we talk to them. But, um, we all accept that there is a real threat from these extreme right-wing white supremacist militia groups that came together on January 6th and produced the horrors of that day, uh, and we want the FBI to do something about it. And how does the FBI detect threats like this, identify the people who can do these sorts of things other than surveillance and the use of informants. Uh, that's the way the FBI traditionally has made cases against terrorist groups, against mobsters, against all the bad people we want the FBI to do something about. 
And and they, by the way, back then they used to also steal their mail. Yeah, um, right. Yes. And they don't have to do that anymore because now they're going to be all over uh, their social media posts, you know, which isn't illegal, but but does uh, represent potential invasions of, of privacy that uh, we should be uh, concerned about. Yeah, which reminds me of the line we did in the last episode, which was the first document that then Washington Post reporter Betty Medsker uh, wrote after she got anonymously the fruits of that uh, break into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, was the one in which agents were told that they needed to enhance the paranoia in these circles, these circles being left wing groups, and further serve to get the point across there is an FBI agent behind every mailbox. Um, But anyway, uh, look, the point is there's a lot to talk about here and, um, you know, we've got two good guests to do it. So let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Shaka King, the director of Judas and the Black Messiah. Shaka, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. So uh, your film is getting a lot of attention and well-deserved praise, and it comes at a uh, important moment in American history. Uh, we are uh, all still absorbing the events of last year with George Floyd's uh, death and the Black Lives Matter movement. I want to ask you, what drew you to this story of Fred Hampton. Well, growing up, um, his was a name that I heard. But if I'm being honest, I knew a lot more about the tragic circumstances of his death than I did the way he lived his life. And when the Lucas brothers came to me in 2016 and said, hey, we want to make The Departed set inside the world of COINTELPRO, focusing on Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. I, I was excited by that pitch initially without, you know, knowing much about Fred Hampton outside of the fact that he was, you know, 21 year old leader of the Black Panthers who the story I'd heard growing up had been shot next to his pregnant wife by the cops, not the FBI. And so when the Lucas brothers kind of laid out more information for me, it was like, this is a very clever way of, and really the only way of bringing this story to really the big screen, not even to the masses, just because to even make a movie about the events of December 4th and, and, and you know the things that led up to it, it's a movie of a certain scope and a certain scale. And you know I, I recognized that you couldn't really make a small independent movie about you know an assassination plot like this and about this guy's life and about this this snitch. You know uh, you need you needed to make something more substantial. So you had to make it within the studio system. And if you're doing that, then you're talking about in Fred Hampton, a guy who doesn't have the kind of name recognition where you can just walk into a studio and say, I want to make a biopic about Fred Hampton. They're going to go, who? You know, and then when you say, oh, I'm talking about a 21 year old, you know, Marxist who was shot in the head while lying next to his pregnant, you know, fiance by the FBI, they're going to be like, why would we make that movie? <laughs> so, I recognize this, the, the sort of clever sort of Trojan horsing that the Lucas Brothers pitch provided. And then later in researching 
Fred Hampton and reading his words for the first time, I was just like, the ideas that this guy had and the way that he phrased them specifically, his just way with words, it was like, you know, we, we initially talked about the genre elements of the film being the vegetables and the, you know, Fred Hampton's words and ideas being the, the sustenance or, or the, the meat, if you will. But when I read those words, I was like, this is meat too, because he just was so not just intelligent, but he was very clever and he was very witty and he was very funny and profane even. And so I also saw the opportunity to present these ideas that were very logical, but also very radical in the form of these incredible set piece speeches that if we had the fortune of casting the right actor, we could deliver on. And, you know, once Daniel was attached, I knew that was a possibility. Shaka, you know, timing is everything in life in a lot of ways. And um, I wonder how conscious were you uh, at the time that you were making this uh, movie that you also had the opportunity to present the Black Panthers, that movement, that ideology in a light that people might be more receptive to uh, at this moment? Well, whether they were receptive to it or not, it was always going to be the intent that we counter the propaganda that had been put forth by the media and history books since from the 60s on. That was our intent before we even sat down and, and met Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. and Akuna Najiri. And they helped to give us an even more holistic picture of who Chairman Fred Hampton was, who you know, who what the members of the Illinois chapter were like. So that was always what we were planning to do. I didn't so much think about the audience that we were making the movie for outside of the fact that I recognized that that audience, even many of our more educated, more hip, more aware audience members who did know a little bit about the Panthers politics would probably also be carrying with them some misinformation as well. Yeah, I mean, it's what's interesting to me is, you know, unless you're someone who's spent a lot of time reading about the Panthers uh, and really immersing yourself into it, I mean, in our culture, they have been caricatured in a lot of ways. Um, and I think there's a lot of, sort of basic things about about them that people didn't know. Like, for example, I mean, you you spent a fair amount of time emphasizing the sort of um, social services aspect of what the Panthers did, right? Like, you know, feeding children and, you know, medical care and taking care of families uh, where the breadwinner might be in prison. That seemed very conscious. Yeah, it was. Absolutely was. I mean, especially knowing that we were making a crime drama. So people's expectations are going to be that we are really focusing exclusively on Panthers' supposed militancy and, and gunplay, and et cetera. So it was important to have enough of those elements to cut together a trailer that would make people who are, are not interested in learning about the Black Panthers, survival programs, as they call them, but were, but were captivated by you know the genre elements of the film. And then, of course, interweave throughout the narrative just those reminders, like these are community organizers, you know, the gunplay is in self-defense, correcting the record. One of the characters in your movie uh, is um, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, played by uh, Martin Sheen. 
a very different role for him um, over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, Danny mentioned before, uh, timing uh, always plays a big role as it happens. Uh, uh, Monday, March 8th, is the 50th anniversary of a break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, in which uh, left-wing activists stole a thousand FBI documents that first revealed um, Hoover's efforts to uh, conduct surveillance of uh, the black community. Uh, there were directives that uh, every FBI field office set up racial squads to recruit informants and also contained the first references to COINTELPRO. We've actually got a clip from the movie in which Martin Sheen, as J. Edgar Hoover, speaks the Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a black messiah. In fact, as was later revealed by the church committee, the idea of a black messiah was very much on J. Edgar Hoover's mind. He used that word in one memo to uh, FBI agents, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Tell us about your decision to include J. Edgar Hoover in this movie and what you think his role was in the events that led to Fred Hampton's death. Well, you know, the decision. So Chairman Fred Hampton's phone was tapped by the FBI when he was 14 years old. So he was on their old? radar wait, wait, wait. 14 years old. When he was 14 years old? His phone was tapped by the FBI at 14 years old. <laughs> That's pretty extraordinary on its face. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was on the FBI's, FBI's radar for some time. And the reason we chose to include Hoover in the film and make him, you know, such a focal point was because I'm convinced that the order for Chairman Fred Hampton's assassination came from the top down. You know, it's, it's now, I think it was revealed a week or two ago that William Sullivan knew about the assassination and he's the number two guy at the FBI. I have to imagine that Jager Hoover was also aware. And even if he didn't literally say, kill this man today, he expressed to his underlings a desire to kill whoever you needed to kill when, when the time comes to do so uh, and, and make those happen, you know, always. It was always, you know, it was very clever. See if you can get another state agency to do it. See if you can get the Chicago Police Department to do it. See if you can get the state's attorney's office to do it, but always pulling the strings. But to do what? I mean, I'm not aware of any directive from Hoover that directly says to assassinate or kill anybody. Now, one would not expect that, but I'm just saying, um, how much are you, you know, inferring and hypothesizing here as opposed to what the actual historical record shows? Well, I mean, the actual historical record, like there was a, an, an old draft of the script when it was over 200 pages. We spelled out the assassination plot, which is very confusing and convoluted, you know, series of events. But, I mean, essentially, the Chicago Police Department and the state's attorney's office was, they claim, working off of a tip that the Panthers had guns in their apartment, uh, illegal weapons in their apartment. And they set about going, you know, organizing a pre-dawn raid to 
reclaim these weapons and arrest them. That information, the FBI for over a decade tried to say they were not responsible for providing that information to the CPD and the state's attorney's office. But then it's discovered that the blueprint, the map that exists of Fred Hampton's apartment in excruciating detail was written and designed by William O'Neill, which lets you know that the FBI provided that blueprint. William O'Neill is the Judas character. He's the FBI informant. So why would the FBI provide blueprints to the apartment for a raid that they have nothing to do with? You know, and the fact that Fred Hampton, who was known to not drink or do any drugs whatsoever his entire life, had enough secondol in his system to have died and been poisoned had he not been shot in the head at point blank range. How did that get into, you know, his Kool-Aid? You know, who drugged him? Isn't it also the case that uh, that William O'Neill um, received a bonus? Yes. After the killings. He was paid $300. That was authorized by the FBI. It was authorized by Mitchell. It was authorized by the head of the Racial Matters Squad. And no one, you know, what was he pay that money for? I want to ask you about two characters that we just talked about who are central to this story. Uh, you mentioned uh, William O'Neill, who was the FBI's informant. Uh, and then Roy Mitchell, who was the FBI agent who was O'Neill's uh, handler. But let's start with uh, with O'Neill, someone who was had uh, a criminal case against him, and uh, the FBI was able to use that as leverage uh, to get him to become an informant. And, and of course, as you mentioned, he drew up the floor plans in the uh, house where they all were uh, that that led to the to the killing. Um, what did he? What did O'Neill represent? To you in this uh, in this movie, I mean, was he in any sense a victim himself, or was he truly Judas? I think he's a, a he's a victim certainly, but I think a lot of times people focus on his victimization at the hands of the FBI, whereas I think he his victimization starts a lot earlier. You know, in the sense that we're talking about a person who was born, you know, into a certain class and taught to desire really a culture raised in the desire, things that were out of his reach, you know, unless he went through larcenous means for the most part to obtain them. And, you know, had he been, one of the reasons why we end the movie was him getting those gas station keys and getting his own business is not only because it's true, but it's the equivalent of a criminal going legit. But the only thing they do when they go legit is commit legal crime. He, if he'd been born, you know, white, middle class, he would have been a businessman. And so, and, and so for me, in a lot of ways, William O'Neill in the film represents the, the culture of capitalism. You know, and I think that he ultimately, even in his, you know, he, he describes himself and was, I, I think, largely was apolitical. But I think even that was the result of the ills of capitalism, poverty, scarcity, you know, I think all of those things in a lot of ways made him a person who focused exclusively on his own self-satisfaction and survival. Now, he died shortly after that scene from Eyes on the Prize where you uh, uh, show him talking about his days as an FBI informant, where he really doesn't express any regrets. Not quite, actually. I think you just have to read between the lines of that interview. 
because he contradicts himself quite a bit. The interview is fascinating because it's filled with lies. And he's lying to himself more than anyone else throughout the interview. I mean, he literally says, I, I, wanted, I grew up wanting to be a cop. And then he says, I never wanted to be a cop. <laughs> you know, he refers to the FBI and the Black Panthers as we and us interchangeably. And, you know, when he's asked if he felt remorse, he denies it. But then he also talks about how he felt, how he felt bad when he entered, you know, the, the, the scene of, of all that carnage. And there's other clues like the fact that he begged to be a pallbearer at Fred Hampton's funeral and cried harder and louder than anyone else. Did he feel guilt? Were those tears of guilt or were those performative tears to, you know, hide his cover? But one of the things when you watch the, the interview in full that's revealing is when he's asked about entering the apartment in the, the next morning. And the first time he answers it, and then he's asked again by the interviewer. And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't do it again. I can't go back. I can't do it. And you see in that moment, his inability to keep the facade up. And so when I look at the end of, the, of that interview, when he's asked, you know, what he would tell his son, and he gives that crazy outlandish answer, you know, about he, how he wasn't an armchair revolutionary. I see a person trying to convince you, but also convince himself that he was ultimately on the side of right and doing so completely unsuccessfully. Like, it's almost like I, I would have believed that question more if he, if he hadn't been so exaggerated in his declaration of having done the right thing and, you know, and been on the right side of history. But it's such an exaggerated claim to make. It's very clear that it's somebody overcompensating for the fact that they feel like a complete piece of trash. You know? And then when you look at when he ended his life, it does make you wonder if his lies caught up to him and he couldn't, he could not run them. He, he didn't leave a, a suicide note or anything that uh, indicated no. why he took his life. No. no. Roy Mitchell, the FBI agent who recruits him. It's interesting because uh, you show him making a point to O'Neill when he's going through the recruitment process about he, Mitchell, having worked for the FBI on the investigation into the murder of the civil rights workers in Mississippi, trying to sort of establish his bona fides as a decent guy to O'Neill. Give us your take on the Roy Mitchell character here. Um, you know, in the movie, you have him saying, look, you know, I, I went after these, uh, you know, the Klansmen who murdered the civil rights workers. I go after individuals who commit violence, who threaten people whose actions and words are a threat. And there's a direct connection between the Klansmen who I went after in Mississippi and the Black Panthers in Chicago. In fact, there's no difference between them is what he says. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you use a word that I think is the perfect word to sum up Roy Mitchell and what we're trying to say about folks like Roy Mitchell. And that's decent. You know, the idea of really decency and American decency is something that you heard echoed a lot, you know, during the Trump administration's desire to return to decency. And when I think about decency, I also think about like, you know, when you're when you're naked and you want to put on clothes to answer the door, you get decent. You cover up. Right. Decency. When I think of decency, I think of camouflage. You know, I think of white centrism. 
I think of a person who's aligned with the power structure, but is not only giving you the illusion that they're an ally for you, but also for their own sense of moral superiority. And so I look at Agent Mitchell as that, and that's a commentary we're making on that character in a lot of ways. He believes everything he's saying. You know, he believes in American exceptionalism and life, liberty, and justice for all. As long, but but wait, but be patient. You know, we'll get to you guys. You know, your turn will come. But I thought, Shaka, that you're, it's interesting. I thought your portrayal of him was was even a little more nuanced than that because my sense was that um, you juxtaposed him against the other FBI agent who was cruder, who was more seemed more overtly racist, and that you showed Mitchell occasionally seeming morally uh, torn. <laughs> and it, I didn't get the impression, which is, yeah, that, which is yeah. all which is all accurate. Yeah. And that's all intentional. Yeah. But he still makes the decision when the rubber meets the road. Right, you exactly. Know? He recognized, when, in that moment where he learns that FBI informants are killing people who they're labeling FBI informants, that's a shit or get off the pot moment. He could have said, oh man, I'm on the wrong side here. Let me become a postal worker. You know? Yeah. But he doesn't do that. So... What would you say to those who might push back and say, you're giving a sort of rosy colored view of the Black Panthers here? Yes, they did the kind of social justice work in the community that you described before, but they also, including Fred Hampton, were, you know, avowed revolutionaries. They called themselves that. They did stockpile weapons. Uh, they did talk about the use of violence. And, uh, you know, there was a reason that uh, people at the FBI viewed them as a potential threat. I mean, I would say all of that's in the movie. So I don't know what, you know, well, what, what I'm did. just saying. If, like what I would say is that, A, that all of that is in the movie. And B, I think also that what made the Black Panthers the greatest threat to national security in J. Edgar Hoover's eyes was the fact that they were feeding kids and that they were building medical clinics and that they were doing, they were providing social services to all these people who didn't support socialism, weren't communist, didn't necessarily, you know, support some of their militant viewpoints, but nevertheless did want their kids to be getting free breakfast and did, you know, want their daughter to be treated for a rat bite or sickle cell. And so he recognized that eventually people were going to wake up and realize, why is the government taxing me when they're not providing me with these services that this local organization is? What's your basis for saying that that's what the FBI and Hoover viewed as the threat as opposed to the rhetoric of violence and the stockpiling of weapons. Because you're talking about rhetoric and the violence that occurred between the Panthers and law enforcement was always them responding to violence, not seeking out violence. I mean, if you look at the actions of a lot of the more, for lack of a better word, like radical actions, so much of that was fostered by Asian provocateurs. Bill O'Neill was constantly trying to get the Black Panthers to engage in shootouts with the police, 
and to blow up federal buildings and, and, and instigating that kind of behavior. They weren't doing that on their own, you know, to the point where he, there were those who wanted him out, you know, because they were like, this guy's a nutcase. And so I, I really do believe that our understanding, our concept of the Black Panthers has been really sculpted largely by the FBI and by the folks that they had writing propaganda about the Black Panthers to where we see them so exclusively as a, as a organization engaged in armed conflict with law enforcement. And we forget that what really would make them dangerous, like it, if J. Edgar Hoover's biggest fear was communism coming to this country, it was a big, that, we, we acknowledge that that was a big deal for him, right? That that was a real concern yeah. for him, right? <laughs> he was obsessed with the communist threat, no question about it. So then feeding kids is that, building medical clinics is that. He was afraid that of that, you know? Yeah. Shaka, you know, the, the uh, FBI under Hoover had, you know, one of the most powerful and effective PR machines that I think we've ever seen. So using your phrase, uh, sculpting the image of, of uh, the Black Panthers um, is, is, I think, right. I wonder all these years later, many FBI directors since J. Edgar Hoover, first of all, to what extent did the FBI ever acknowledge or apologize for its actions um, in that in that case, and what is your sense of the FBI and its attitudes toward um, these these kinds of issues today? How far have they come or not come? As far as I know, they've never apologized. It took twelve years for them to pay them one point eight five million dollars, which is that was in a civil rights lawsuit that lawsuit, yeah. that the family brought the family and, and the survivors. But it was against the Chicago police and the Chicago state's attorney's office as well as the FBI. It was. It was against all those entities. It was mostly Chicago police officers who conducted the raid, right? It was mostly the state's attorney's office that conducted the raid, even more mm. so than Chicago police department. Mm. But the FBI, as far as I know, has never apologized for their actions. And in terms of, you hear, I believe, James Comey talk about J. Edgar Hoover's legacy being a real stain on the Bureau, et cetera. But when I talk to folks I know on the ground, organizing in places like Ferguson, they tell me about how they're experiencing the same kinds of co-and-to-pro-like methods in terms of trying to destabilize their organizations. That from informants to drone technology to their phones being tapped. So I don't think things have changed that significantly. Well, let, let me ask you a question I've asked others. I mean, uh, right now, the FBI director, Chris Ray, has identified white nationalist militia groups as the number one terrorist threat facing the country um, in the aftermath of January 6th. A lot of people are talking about how the FBI needs to step up its surveillance of these groups in order to investigate. You need to recruit informants like Bill O'Neill inside these groups in order to detect future actions such as January 6th? Would you have a problem with the FBI using some of those methods against the white nationalist threat right now? That is such a great question. And it's, I think, in the instance of the Panthers, they weren't committing a crime, you know? So that's like asking me if, you know, if we're talking about folks who are committing crimes, if law enforcement should do everything within, the, within their legal means to prevent criminals from committing crimes. 
And I have to say, since that's the framework within which powers that be in this country operate, I would say yes. Because often, and we've seen this in the FBI's investigation of terrorist groups, uh, most of their cases come about through informants. And inevitably, and, and I've seen this in lots of cases they've brought, uh, the uh, defense lawyers accuse the informants of being provocateurs, of having been sort of setting up the illegal action that their clients are charged with. The thing is that that happens quite a bit with yeah. informants. You know, I mean, and that's the thing about the way that the FBI uses informants. They don't tend to, the same way that the FBI is, they're prosecuting people who aren't criminals. They're also using informants in completely illegal ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, it reminds me of a uh, exchange I once had with uh, uh, Mueller. He had just stepped down as FBI director, but I was on a panel questioning him, and I brought up a case in upstate New York where there had been an HBO documentary about the, the FBI's case in which they focused on the role of the informants in setting it up. And Mueller's, you know what Mueller's response was? Did we get a conviction in that case? And I said, well, yes, you did, Mr. Director. He said, then what's your issue? <laughs> um, it was kind of the way uh, Bob Mueller looked at it. If it was, uh, if they got a conviction, it was fine. Hey, uh, what was the uh, role that Fred Hampton Jr. played in helping you uh, on this movie? He and Akuna Jerry, his mother, formerly known as Deborah Johnson, were cultural consultants on the film. So we spent about a year and a half of just like getting to know them and th them really getting to know us. And then our second week of filming. Fred Hampton Jr. was on set every day from there on, and Akua Nigeria would make a number of visits. And they were involved in advising us on everything from the wardrobe to the way folks stood to how they smoked a cigarette to the true oral history of certain events that, you know, the written record put forth a different version of the truth. You know, essentially they were there to make sure that the legacy of Chairman Fred Hampton, the Illinois chapter, was preserved. And, and Fred Hampton Jr. is now? He's chairman of the Black Panther Party Cubs, which is an organization that his mother uh, is on the advisory board. And I mean, they're doing a lot of the same programs uh, in Maywood, Illinois, where Chairman Fred Hampton is from, that he was engaged in, you know, down to the breakfast program on Saturdays. They do, they do that. How'd they like the movie? They're happy with it. You know, it, it, it took a lot for us to get here and everyone to come away satisfied. But I mean, that was the upside of having them off early. I knew what was problematic for them from, the, from day one. All right. So uh, uh, we're in award season. Um, are you uh, optimistic? I'm just, you know, taking things as they come. If, if, if that happens for us, then that's nice. And if it doesn't happen for us, that's also fine. Yeah. Final, final question. Um, we're going to have... Uh, Congressman Steve Cohen uh, from Tennessee on uh, after you. He's got a bill that he's reintroduced this year. He's been pushing it for uh, quite some time to take J. Edgar Hoover's name off the FBI building in Washington. Your thoughts on that? I think it's um, that's something, but I think I, I would much rather see the Black Panthers that J. Edgar Hoover's COINTELPRO program locked up for, you know, decades and decades. I'd love to see those folks freed, you know, those political prisoners, you know, like Sundiata, Colleen, 
Omiyab and Jamal. And I'd love to see those individuals who are exiled, like Asada Shakur, allowed to return home and, you know, see their families and friends. I think, you know, removing the name from a building is it's, it's cosmetic. And cosmetic change is still change of some kind, but it's not nearly, it's not any real form of redress. It's not fixing anything, you know. It's, it's actually, in some ways, a, a, a fairly hollow statement. You know, a real statement would be like, hey, let's, look, let's take a look at COINTELPRO and the damage it caused, and let's engage in some restorative justice. It's certainly a chapter in American history that uh, folks should know a lot more about. And uh, Shaka, thanks. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And good luck with the film. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We now have with us Congressman Steve Cohn from Tennessee, from Memphis, Tennessee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Skullduggery is something I named a bill when I was state senator, and we named it the anti-Skullduggery bill. Right. Yes. Well, we need you to introduce the pro-Skullduggery bill, Congressman. <laughs> right. The Republicans do it every day, every hour. <laughs> okay. So uh, you have reintroduced your bill to uh, rename the J. Edgar Hoover Building in Washington, D.C., headquarters of the FBI. And uh, there seems to be some renewed interest in it this time around. Tell us why and um, what kind of support you're getting for it? Well, I think there's some renewed interest, partly because of the uh, the times we've seen in the last few years, several uh, buildings named for people whose pasts have come forward in a more clear fashion. Uh, and they've taken those names off of buildings, people who were Klansmen. So I think things have changed. Statues have come down. Robert E. Lee came out of the Capitol Crypt, which I never thought it would. So things have changed. And then the movie Judas and, and, and the Black Messiah, I think, has brought some more attention to it. That movie's gotten a, a grand reception and it, it showed the uh, interaction between the FBI and the Chicago Police Department in killing, murdering Fred Hampton. Uh, and that was part of the COINTELPRO, J. Edgar Hooper's uh, organized effort to make sure there was not a black leader that rose up to be for civil rights and for better conditions in the black community which people are seeing more and more is necessary in our country and fair. So I think that the movie has had something to do with it. And I think the times are coming to catch up with this. And, and uh, Nancy Pelosi talks a lot about the, the times have found us. And then the times have, have found certain civil rights and uh, justice issues. Uh, Congressman, I, I, I'm interested in, um, I mean, clearly it's newsworthy that there, there is more support for this. But I want to ask you why it's taken so long at the FBI. I mean, when I started covering the FBI, you know, back in the 90s, I guess, there was already talk about this. People were, had raised it as an issue. We have known for decades and decades about uh, the you know, dark stain uh, on the FBI during the Hoover years, um, you know, going after gays, going after civil rights leaders and blacks more generally – and anti-war uh, demonstrators. Where is the opposition coming from? Is it within the FBI? Is the FBI – the FBI uh, Agents Association used to be pretty powerful. Also, Isikoff and I both covered uh, a guy named John Collingwood who, who ran their legislative operation, which was very effective. 
why has there been so much opposition to this for all these years? Well, I just think that uh, J. Edgar Hoover's name gets a lot more reverence than it's deserved. A lot of people are not really familiar with what he did to gays. And if they are, some of them look at it as just, well, that was the time. And, and so because he wasn't ahead of his time, he shouldn't be punished, I guess. And then um, as far as the African-American situation, it's kind of the same thing. People are getting more educated to it, but they still think those were the times. And uh, of course, what he, he held things over, Linda Johnson and John Kennedy's head. He basically engaged in blackmail to keep his job. And that's why he kept it forever. He knew about John Kennedy's romantic relationships. He knew about Linda Johnson's romantic relationships. But, but Congressman, look, uh, all that's been known for years. I think what Danny was asking is, why has there not been more support for what you've been trying to do uh, in recent years, given all that we know about the way J. Edgar Hoover ran the FBI? Well, I don't know that it's all that well known. I think it's fairly well known, but I think a lot of people don't know, number one. And number two, Republicans in general are not part of changing history and, and having it reflect what is considered appropriate and proper at this time. That's They've got this whole cancel culture theory. And so they've never, and while it's become known as cancel culture, they always practiced it. And I don't think you've ever seen a Republican at the front of, or even in the, in the middle, uh, hardly in the back of the line, to take down a statue, to do anything. Well, so you've got that, and they've had power. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to defend Dr. Seuss. It's another to defend the guy who instituted COINTELPRO uh, to um, uh, harass and intimidate regard, people. All, all yeah. due appreciation. If you take a poll, I would bet you 90% or more of the society have no clue what COINTELPRO was, and probably 90% of the Republicans don't. They don't know. This is an ugly part of our past that's not well. well hopefully some of them some of them will be listening to uh, uh, Skullduggery uh, this week. Um, An another thing that's happened is that after I first introduced the bill and the residents wasn't there and maybe the second time as well, there was always an idea that the FBI was going to be moved to Virginia or to Maryland. And so it was kind of like, well, it's going to be moved. There's not going to be a Jager Hooper building. And, and I, I think I'd asked Mueller at a hearing about the name of the new building. And I think it was Mueller was FBI director, and he said it would it'd be named for somebody who reflected the values of the FBI. And I felt satisfied. Of course, Mueller's no longer there. And I'm sure if they get a new building, but now it looks like they may not get a new building. And if they, and if they do, it's going to be a while away. Right. In fact, they're spending, uh, GSA is spending $5 million on renovations at the Hoover building right now, which is a pretty good sign that while they're still supposedly looking for a new site for a new building. It's going to be years away and they're you know, increasing the investment in the current building itself. Are you sensing you're getting more support now? Well, most of the support we've got so far, and it's just early, has been African-Americans, members of the CBC. Um, there are very few Caucasians, even on the Democratic side, who've signed on. Hasn't Connolly from Virginia? You know, he has, he's, he probably, if he hasn't, he will. He's had a bill of his own. Mm -hmm. to rename it uh, a couple of years ago, just to call it the FBI building. What would you name it? I mean, do you, do you have a specific name or just, just the FBI building? Well, I think it's easier just to call it the FBI building and not yeah. to pick a name. I mean, yeah. Uh, so the last FBI director, James Comey, um, before he was fired by Donald Trump, he spoke out on these issues of this you know dark chapter in the FBI's history. He 
he basically said that the, all incoming classes of FBI agents have to read Martin Luther King's uh, letter from the Birmingham jail. He instituted a new part of the curriculum at the FBI to teach agents about the uh, FBI's campaign of harassment and spying on civil rights leaders. He called this a a shameful uh, chapter in the FBI's history. Uh, was he in favor of changing the name of the of the FBI, or did he um, uh, or, or did he oppose it? FBI building the FBI building? The yeah, FBI. yeah. I, I don't know if I if I put call me on the spot to that or not. And in his time when he was head of the FBI, I think it was during the period of time that we thought the the FBI was going to move, and it was before uh, Trump opposed the move. Well, Trump was in favor of the move. He was against the move because he didn't want a hotel there. Right. Well, oh, he didn't want competition. Right. right. Well, well, the reason I ask about Comey is because I, I, you know, I remember when all those years ago when we were covering the FBI, it, it, I remember that FBI officials and agents used to still talk of uh, Hoover with some reverence. They called him Mr. Hoover in the building. Do you think and, and is it your goal to um, – I guess erase Hoover from history isn't isn't the right way to put it. But do you acknowledge that he did build a very effective, not just powerful, but a very effective law enforcement agency and that even if his name is taken off the building, uh, that for the FBI, um, for that institution – that there ought to be some recognition of uh, of his uh, legacy in, in his more positive legacy. In other words, would you be opposed to, say, a, a, a bust or a statue of somewhere in the building? Or do you think he is just such a stain on our country that he has to essentially just be removed from it entirely? Well, I think his name should not be out there in, in, in that state of, of reverence. Uh, you know, a photograph, I mean, we took down um, a speaker's painting in the uh, speaker's lobby because he was convicted of uh, sexual harassment and, and payoffs, et cetera, Den- Denny Hastert. So those things have happened. I, I don't know that the, a photograph along a, a, gr- a group of former directors would be uh, verboten. And a bust, I think, might be questionable for, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen uh, Judas and the Black Messiah? Yes. Tell us what you thought about it and how it connects with what you're trying to do here. Well, I think it was a really great movie. Uh, it was a uh, a part of our history. I mean, Fred Hampton was amazing. I didn't realize until I'd seen the movie and studied it afterwards, but he was just 22 years old. I mean, what a charismatic leader, of which a lot of the civil rights leaders were extremely young. John Lewis was in his early 20s when he got started. Julie Bond was in his early, Dr. King was in his 20s. But Fred Hampton was just 22 when he was killed. He was a charismatic leader that put together the different gangs, which, of course, Hoover feared. Uh, but the ability to do that and to organize at the grassroots level was phenomenal. And that, I think, I read was his really main talent was, was grassroots organizing. He was a very successful uh, leader of the African-American community, and he was taken out because he was such a leader. And there was fear of what he might do in the 60s for that kind of time. We've always wondered and we still wondered. I'm not I'm not uh, one of those conspiratorialists that think that uh, there was somebody in the on shooting from the grassy knoll. but all those horrific assassinations of, of John and Robert Kennedy and, and Dr. King, those were probably the three people that J. Edgar Hoover hated the most. And they all were assassinated within a five-year period. And then you had Malcolm X uh, and, and, and Fred, Fred Hampton, who were leaders uh, in the African-American community, which he detested as well. So you, you just, 
it may be a, a, just a, a coincidence, the times, the era, but uh, it's kind of hard to think that uh, he wouldn't have had a connection. So, Congressman, the Hoover died almost 50 years ago. Next year, it'll be 50 years. And the FBI, uh, like America generally, has has evolved. Uh, there has been you know, considerable progress uh, on racial issues. But what about today? I mean, do you think um, – the FBI needs a reckoning today on, on racial issues. Do you think it suffers from systemic racism uh, like a lot of other institutions uh, in America? How concerned are you about where the FBI is today in terms of um, racial issues? From what I've gleaned, I think it is not as bad as some other law enforcement agencies, as most law, other law enforcement agencies, and maybe even some uh, other agencies in our, in our, in our, that our government has. But, uh, but people who are attracted to law enforcement are generally more conservative, and the, and the more conservative, they're not necessarily you're not necessarily racist, no no question about it. They're upstanding conservatives, but they are more likely to have been led into some type of a questioning of of changes. They don't see society change too much. You know, I, I wonder if, if if things are changing a bit. I was watching the other day when uh, Chris Ray, FBI director, testified uh, before the Senate on the uh, events of January 6th, and CNN and MSNBC gave it wall-to-wall coverage, and Fox News wasn't even covering it. They were all obsessing over Dr. Seuss and cancel culture. And that suggests to me that, you know, perhaps there's been a shift in political attitudes towards the FBI, which leads to my next question, you know, given the nature of the white supremacist and militia threat right now, there are a lot of calls for the FBI to step up its surveillance of these groups, to place informants in them. That's the only way you can detect plots and plans such as we saw on January 6th. Yet that's exactly the kinds of things that the FBI was doing under J. Edgar Hoover to left-wing groups and civil rights groups. Would you be in favor, uh, particularly as I believe you were at least, I don't know if you still are, the chairman of the Constitutional Rights Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, um, would you be in favor of stepped up FBI surveillance of suspected white supremacist and militia groups? I think we would need a change in the law. Um, as I understand it, they can they can do certain surveillance on foreign enemies of the nation, but not necessarily on, on domestic enemies. And we need to have that. Uh, we've seen from January the 6th that our, our, our greatest threat is from within. And if these people are plotting against the government of the United States, yes, uh, plotting to change society, which is what the civil rights movements were doing, is a different story. Trying to just change for for civil rights, for voting look, rights. Look, in the movie, Fred Hampton you know, repeatedly says, I am a revolutionary. He's not interested in reform. He's interested in revolution. Um, the Black Panthers did acquire weapons. They stockpiled weapons. One can see, can't you, that how to the FBI leadership led by J. Edgar Hoover, they would look at that and see the kind, the same kind of threat to civic order that you see now from some of these groups that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. It's a big difference in the threat to civic, civic order and, and maybe uh, taking some type of action against the Chicago School Board or the Chicago City Hall and, and the United States Capitol. What happened on January 6th is a, is a, is a sin that has not been seen in this country uh, ever. 
domestically, ever. A group of people trying to disrupt the workings of the United States Congress and in fulfilling its duties under the United States Constitution to elect a president of the United States. And there was there was the attempt, and that's what they were trying to do, was to change the vote to the Electoral College to, to, and to elect Donald Trump. It was a coup. Uh, what Fred, Fred Hampton was doing was not going to be a coup against the United States. And revolution to them, basically, I think revolution to Fred Hampton was not turning over the government of the United States. It was giving black people basic rights. And, and you could talk about being a revolutionary, but that, that was revolutionary. But that was not a revolution against the throne or against the, the, the power of the, the British government. It was a, a change in mindset. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, you mentioned Pelosi has talked about uh, the need to make changes uh, in, in, in statues and, and, and buildings that honor people who have been discredited by history. Do you have any op? Optimism that your bill is going to get anywhere this session? Will there be a hearing? Um, is there any way to get it to a vote? Do you have any Republican Republicans no, who've signed up? No, Repu- no Republican support in the first response we got was all African-Americans. Danny Davis, Barbara Lee, Sheila Jackson mm-hmm. Lee, mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby Rush, you know, Hank Johnson, the usual suspects. Uh, kind of shocking. I don't know. I, I, I think it's kind of shocking at this. But anyway. Well, it's... for one thing, you know, when you, when you remove a statue, of a Confederate, you've got a built-in constituency that likes the fact that you've taken it out. The African-American community, the liberal community, uh, the, the, the beloved community. Well, who's J- who's J. Edgar Hoover's uh, constituency today? Well, his constituency is, is a combination of conservatives, law enforcement people, and, uh, and, and, and inertia. There's not a constituency that would necessarily revel at the fact that his name was taken off. All right. I didn't, I didn't get an answer to my question. Can you get a hearing? Can you get a vote? It'll be difficult. It'll be difficult. Really? Nadler won't even give you a hearing in judiciary? Well, I'm not sure it'll come in judiciary committee because it's renaming of a federal building would either come in transportation. If it comes to transportation under buildings, it would come under Eleanor Holmes Norton. And I think with Eleanor Holmes Norton, we could get a hearing. So that's a possibility. You will always get a hearing from Skullduggery. And I'm going <laughs> to, I haven't consulted with Isakoff, but because this yeah. is an important issue, uh, I'm going to commit right now that every time you reintroduce this bill, we will have you on. <laughs> well, thank you. I think Eleanor Holmes Norton is a possibility that there's a, this, this subcommittee that she chairs in transportation on federal buildings in the DC area. Uh, could be government oversight, but the odds are, and I'll try to get it into Eleanor Holmes Norton committee, so at least we can get a hearing. Now, whether well, they can get into transportation, see where it goes. All right. Well, we'll do a uh, follow-up uh, skullduggery with Eleanor Holmes Norton <laughs> and, uh, and and put some heat on her to uh, at least give you a hearing. Um, that something. would be great. Okay. Thank you. Good to be with skullduggery. Yes. <laughs> Thank you.